All right, welcome back, guys, to um, our muscle disorder section of our podcast uh, with Jeff, who's kind enough to to go over them in, in um, some rather complicated disorders. Um, and we can go ahead and talk about channelopathies, um, starting with chloride channelopathies. How are you, Jeff? I'm great. How are you? Good. Great. All right. So, yeah, the channelopathies. Uh, the channelopathies cover a wide range of diseases. I think the one category that's sort of folded into here is the non-dystrophic myotonias, because a lot of these clinically or electrographically have some degree of myotonia or paramyotonia, which we'll talk about. Uh, so let me start with uh, the chloride channelopathies, and I'll organize these by which ion channel is affected. I think that's one way to learn them, but you don't have to learn it that way uh, if something else helps you. So let's start with myotonia congenita, which is probably the most classic non-dystrophic myotonia. Uh, and it's called non-dystrophic because these patients have clinical myotonia, but they don't go on to develop the features of a muscular dystrophy. So Thompson disease is the autosomal dominant form. There's also an autosomal recessive form called Becker disease, which we'll talk about next. So Thompson disease uh, presents early in childhood, sometimes in the first few years of life. And parents often notice that, say, their baby can't open their eyes again after they've been crying, uh, which is a, you know, really just a clinical myotonia. As they grow older, they develop some chewing or grip myotonia and also limb myotonia, so stiffness of the limbs early in movement. Like other myotonias, the warm-up phenomenon is present. In other words, the patients can often work their way out of uh, a myotonic contraction just by continuing to move. Uh, on exam, you actually see uh, an increased muscle bulk. They have a very muscular fatigue, uh, physique, and you can see uh, action and percussion myotonia just like you would uh, in myotonic dystrophy. Uh, but they have really very little weakness uh, on confrontational exam, if any. Uh, and there are also no systemic associations in terms of cardiac or other organ system uh, impact. Uh, they may have an increased risk of malignant hyperthermia. The autosomal recessive form is called Becker disease. This usually presents later in childhood, uh, but it's, it's more often seen with some degree of weakness. Again, not on the order you would see uh, in a muscular dystrophy. Just like Thompson disease, there are no systemic features, but again, there could be an increased risk of malignant hyperthermia. Uh, in both forms, the CK is usually normal. Uh, and if you look at their EMG, it's a dead giveaway because you frequently capture uh, myotonic discharges on EMG. You don't really treat either of these except for symptomatic management. So if patients are really bothered by the myotonia, uh, sometimes I'll offer them uh, a medication like uh, an antiepileptic that has some form of sodium channel blockade, or if things are more severe, the most effective is probably mexilatine, uh, which is an antiarrhythmic. And so we have to check beforehand and then monitor the QTC interval if we're giving this medication. Very good. And, and then you were, you were mentioning um, that there's a painful form um, that has myalgias. Yeah, I think it's worth knowing that most of these channelopathies are not restricted necessarily to one ion channel. I'm just talking about the most common form. But for instance, in myotonia congenita, there's a, a sodium channel variant that tip more typically has myalgias with it, but otherwise has the same phenotype. So just, I think, worth knowing in the back of your mind that a few of these diseases are exclusive to one ion channel. And clearly, the various ion channels interact similarly in muscle physiology because myotonia uh, is present across a lot of these. I'm sorry if the answer is obvious, but when we say myotonia congenita, are we specifically talking about a um, a type of chloride channelopathy, or is myotonia uh, congenita could because because you just mentioned a, a, a sodium channelopathy? 
with myalgias under the same category. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, you know, an authoritative list of these, there are usually multiple genotypes uh, in different channels affected that can have a similar phenotype. So the answer, I think, probably used to be, yes, it was people with this particular mutation, but now we have a range of known mutations that can cause the same syndrome. And so right. probably uh, when we talk about like Thompson or Becker, we're talking about the inheritance pattern and the clinical syndrome, including one of these known mutations, but there's definitely more than one. I see. Excellent. But it's it's classified under chloride tunnelopathy just because those are the most common genetic forms in that um, clinical syndrome or... Clinical Correct. Syndrome. And I think for exam purposes, it's that's the one you need to know. Okay. Very good. Thanks for clarifying that. And then we can move on to sodium channelopathies in uh, greater uh, detail. Yeah. So sodium channelopathies... Uh, involve a couple of diseases that you've probably heard of. I think we'll talk about the two most common ones. Uh, all sodium channelopathies are autosomal dominant, and they have various point mutations in the SCN4A uh, voltage-gated sodium channel, uh, with, which goes by the designation uh, NAV1.4. So that's the, the sodium channel designation. Uh, the one disease you should definitely know is paramyotonia congenita. Uh, so... The reason they call it paramyotonia is because it has paradoxical myotonia. So most myotonia gets better as you use the muscle more. Paramyotonia actually gets worse, and that's what makes it paradoxical. So it's the opposite of the warm-up phenomenon. And the myotonia gets worse with repeated exercise. So one way to bring this out clinically is to have a patient repeatedly squeeze their eyes. And after uh, a few attempts of this, it will become more and more difficult to open the eyelids. Uh, and these patients actually can be potassium sensitive because this uh, mutation is allelic with hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Patients with this disease usually present by 10 years of age. Uh, and again, I think the eyelid is probably where they'll most often complain of this, but you can see uh, paramyotonia and other muscles. And cold is probably uh, the biggest trigger for this other than repeated use. These patients are more likely to have prolonged weakness after uh, a paramyotonic episode. Uh, and that's probably partly because of the overlap with periodic paralysis. Uh, even though the myotonia is paradoxical, you'll still see your normal myotonic discharges on EMG. And again, if it's really bothersome, uh, you can sometimes treat these patients with mexilatine, uh, being aware of the risks that come with that. The other one you should know is hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. This is also known as potassium-sensitive periodic paralysis. Uh, these patients can have clinical myotonia, clinical paramyotonia, or no myotonia observable at all. Uh, it's less prominent in this disorder than it is in the paramyotonia or myotonia congenita. This is also due to a mutation in the SCN4A gene. So it is allelic with paramyotonia congenita. Uh, it usually presents in the first day of life, first decade of life, excuse me. Uh, and you'll see uh, episodes of periodic paralysis. Usually these are uh, precipitated by brief rest after exercise, but also any high potassium load or fasting can trigger these. And in the paramyotonic form, cold can trigger them just like cold can trigger paramyotonia. And that's probably what where you see these overlap syndromes of patients with paramyotonia and then an episode of weakness. They're probably having a, a periodic paralysis episode. Interestingly, this can be diffuse weakness. It can be focal weakness. The respiratory muscles are uh, relatively spared for some reason. This is why these are not fatal. Uh, and they're typically more short-lived than the hypokalemic form, 
which we'll talk about next, but patients may say they have some residual weakness for a few days after an attack. But the attacks are usually in the order of an hour or two or sometimes less. Uh, and if you check their uh, potassium level during the attack, that's when you see elevated potassium. And that's where the name hyperkalemic comes from. Often, if you check them in between attacks, their EMG can either be normal or if they have one of the myotonic or paramyotonic forms, you can actually see myotonic discharges on their EMG. Uh, but if you check them during an attack, they'll have total loss of voluntary motor units. So it truly is a voluntary muscle uh, paralysis. Uh, the treatment is kind of to avoid the triggers. So they usually recommend a low potassium, high carbohydrate diet and avoiding fasting or strenuous activity or prolonged exposure to cold, particularly activity in the cold. Uh, I don't, I've never done this, although I've never actually followed a case chronically because it's fairly rare. But uh, if you read the textbooks, some people will say you can use some of the older uh, non-potassium sparing diuretics as prophylaxis. Uh, during an attack, it's often helpful to give some glucose in the form of uh, probably not a potassium-enriched sports drink, but uh, maybe more like a, a low-potassium soda or, or even just pure glucose tablets. Uh, and in severe attacks, you can do things to drive down potassium like you would in your average patient on the medicine floor. Uh, a, minor a minority of these patients uh, can have uh, some hypokalemic features, and that probably means that there's an overlap syndrome because this uh, can be allelic uh, with some of the less common forms of hypo hypokalemic periodic paralysis. So again, kind of confusing, but not all periodic paralysis with an SCN4A mutation is hyperkalemic. You really have to go by the clinical syndrome. And then how about hypokalemic periodic paralysis, Jeff? And this is under calcium channelopathies. Yeah, so, uh, you know, clinically they both present with periodic weakness. Uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis has a few different features. Uh, and again, it's important to know that there are genetic uh, overlap between the two syndromes. But hypokalemic periodic paralysis is autosomal dominantly inherited. As you said, it is a calcium channelopathy, and it's a mutation in the CACN1AS uh, gene, which leads to altered voltage gating uh, of the, the calcium channel. And this, uh, this channel is also known as the dihydropyridine receptor. So if you ever hear that phrase, that's what they're talking about. Uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis comes on a little bit later in life, uh, usually in the first or second decade. Uh, and it has a few things that make it distinct from hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. So both can be triggered by exercise, uh, and usually it's resting after exercise. For hypokalemic periodic paralysis, it requires usually more strenuous exercise and more prolonged rest, and often can happen uh, in the morning, uh, waking up out of sleep, actually. So there's something about waiting longer after the exercise that triggers this. Uh, in terms of other triggers, so this is where it's the opposite of its hyperkalemic uh, cousin, uh, a carbohydrate load will actually trigger hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Uh, alcohol can also do it as well. Uh, it's not as cold sensitive as hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. Again, the weakness can take on sort of any spectrum. It can be mild focal or severe diffuse weakness, but again, the respiratory muscles are spared. Uh, and it lasts much longer than its hyperkalemic cousin. So usually on the order of hours to even up to a day, and again, can have prolonged mild residual weakness. People tend to recover in sort of a reverse order from how they got weak as well. There is sometimes a prodrome to this, and patients will say they feel sort of achy or heavy all over. Some will complain of a lower back pain. Uh, and actually, people have reported that if they feel this prodrome, 
and do some mild exercise, they can avert an attack, uh, which I think is really interesting. Uh, as you would expect from the naming, well, when you check serum potassium levels during an episode, they're low, hence hypokalemic. Uh, and the muscle can be uh, completely unexcitable electrically uh, on EMG, but maybe normal in between attacks. So you're probably less likely to see myotonia in these patients, although you can see it. Uh, this is mainly, again, treated with avoiding the triggers. So avoiding very strenuous exercise, mild exercise seems to be okay. Avoiding high carb meals. Uh, and actually during attacks, uh, patients will sometimes take like an oral potassium salt, like potassium chloride uh, or a powder to help avert the attacks. And usually swallowing muscles are also not affected uh, as severely, which is good. Uh, and again, just like a lot of these other disorders, there is a form that can put patients at risk for malignant hyperthermia. So it's just worth knowing. Um, I think that's probably all you really need to know about about this, but any anything you want to say to sum up, Stavo? Sure, absolutely. So, so the main things that we can remember is that after a carbohydrate load, there's going to be a surge in insulin, which will drive potassium into the cell. Uh, and that's going to be what aggravates or what triggers weakness in the setting of hypokalemic periodic paralysis. And then we can remember that the opposite effect happened with hyperkalemic, where it's fasting that triggers the weakness in hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. And then like you mentioned, both can happen in the setting of exercise. Hypokalemics tend to be after strenuous exercise. And we can remember that also with the strenuous comes that the fact its weakness could last for longer up to a day. Yeah, and that's hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Hypokalemic, exactly. And then you said that it recovers in reverse order. What does that exactly entail? So for instance, if the weakness seemed to spread, start in my arm and then spread out to my legs, it would recover from my legs back up to my arms again. So it's, okay. whatever got weak first is probably going to get strong again last. Very good. Thank you so much for that. So then we can go ahead and uh, talk about acquired myopathies, starting with inflammatory myopathies. And uh, I, I know this is tend to be a um, uh, very clinically relevant uh, topic and often confusing. Yeah, it, I agree. And it's confusing because there's a lot of overlap, actually. And I think more and more people sort of argue as to how distinct the diseases we're going to talk about really are uh, from one another. But yeah, the inflammatory myopathies, you really kind of have to know the big three. I'm going to talk about a fourth one because uh, I think it's clinically important to diagnose. But the ones we probably all think of are polymyositis, dermatomyositis, and inclusion body myositis. Uh, and those are probably the three most distinctive categories that we formed for these, although they can have features of overlap. And a lot of times these sort of overlap syndromes are seen with another rheumatologic disorder like scleroderma, Sjogren's. Uh, systemic lupus, uh, or uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So there, again, this is a very broad spectrum, but I'll, and, and be aware that everything I say is, is sort of a categorical statement, but may not be exactly true in every case. So let's talk about polymyositis. Uh, polymyositis in itself is actually probably a group of different disorders. Uh, it generally presents in adulthood, and that's one thing that distinguishes it from dermatomyositis, which can present also in adulthood, but also in childhood. So it's uh, polymyositis is not as present across the entire lifespan. Uh, it usually is a subacute on the order of weeks to months, uh, progression of symmetric proximal weakness. Uh, there is often some myalgia or muscle tenderness, but it's not as prominent as the weakness. And that can be what distinguishes it from other 
painful inflammatory disorders like uh, polymyalgia rheumatica, for instance, which really is not so much about weakness, but intense pain limiting the muscle movement. So uh, polymyositis, again, is a subacute progression of weakness. Almost always the CK is elevated in these patients. It's a, it's a destructive myositis. Uh, it's autoimmune mediated. There actually are a fair number of antibodies that can cause it. It's definitely important to know one antibody in particular for exam purposes, and that's JO1, J-O-1. The, important, the reason JO1 is important is because, A, it's a commonly identified antibody, uh, but B, it's associated with a high incidence of interstitial lung disease. Uh, why these JO1 antibodies form or these other antibodies form, we don't necessarily know, although I think, uh, as in many other autoimmune uh, neuromuscular diseases, the trigger is thought to be possibly post-infectious with a molecular mimicry phenomenon happening. When you EMG these patients, uh, it can be a, this is one of the little EMG uh, exceptions that can be a little confusing for people. So we often think of fibrillations and positive sharp waves as clear signs of denervation. And in 99% of EMGs that are performed, that's probably true. Uh, this is one of those cases where you can see them in a muscle disorder. Uh, and that's because the muscle fibers themselves are irritable. Uh, because there is an inflammation happening. Uh, so you'll see often see uh, spontaneous activity uh, on at rest, and then with recruitment is really where you distinguish a neurogenic from a myopathic phenomenon. So in polymyositis, you're going to see a myopathic pattern of recruitment. That's uh, short or low amplitude, short duration motor units uh, that are uh, have early recruitment. So your your you know motor units are intact but the muscle fibers themselves are weak. And so you have to recruit all of your muscle fibers at once to get the same amount of strength that you normally would. You can also see polyphagia in some of the motor unit uh, morphologies. And so that can be a little confusing because that crosses over with neurogenic changes, but it's that early recruitment and low amplitude uh, as well as short duration that tell you that you're seeing a myopathic process. Great, a finding we should all remember. Yes. Uh, and in, in diagnosis of polymyositis, the, the biopsy is critical. So antibodies can have overlap with different syndromes. The EMG can have overlap with different syndromes. But the antibody is usually pretty distinctive in polymyositis. And what you like to see is uh, obviously some inflammatory infiltrate. And this is it's probably most prominent with polymyositis as compared to the other uh, acquired inflammatory myopathies. And you really want to see T cells invading non-necrotic muscle fiber. Uh, suggesting that it's not just immune uh, cleanup of a otherwise damaged fiber, but that the immune invasion is actually what's causing the damage. Uh, so that's that's probably the most helpful. Although again, even that is not specific necessarily to polymyositis. You can see it in some cases of uh, inclusion body myositis and other things, but it's very helpful in the right clinical picture. Uh, the reason it's so important to uh, diagnose uh, this disease is it's actually treatable. So it's uh, it, just like another inflammatory neuromuscular disorder, uh, the treatment is with immune suppression, and you have a lot of options here. Steroids actually tend to be fairly effective, uh, even oral steroids, at a moderate to high dose, uh, at least in the beginning. Of course, we don't like to have patients on long-term oral corticosteroids, so we'll often think about a secondary steroid sparing agent, and you still have a lot of options. So azathioprine, uh, methotrexate, and rituximab are often used. Cyclophosphamide can be used as well. Uh, some patients will get IVIG if they can't tolerate these other medications. I think there's less evidence for plasma exchange in this disorder than in some of the other inflammatory neuromuscular disorders. But, uh, you know, if worse came to worse, it's an option as well. 
we can talk about dermatomyositis next. Yeah, so the easy way to remember dermatomyositis is it's it's polymyositis with skin changes, but that's an oversimplification, and actually the the pathology is quite different. So they're really uh, probably related, but not the same disorder. Uh, the thing that though that does distinguish dermatomyositis is that it has uh, dermatologic features. Again, this can really come on at any age, even in childhood. Uh, it looks, in terms of the weakness, like other classic myopathic disorders. So you have a symmetric proximal greater than distal weakness. But what you see here is uh, a number of sort of classic skin findings. So the one that you should probably all have learned already for uh, you know, step exams uh, is the heliotrope rash. So that's that sort of purplish red rash around the eyes. Uh, you can also see these photosensitive rashes on the chest and back. The shawl sign is sort of over the back and shoulders. The V sign is uh, in the front of the chest. And then you see these hand findings. So Gottron's papules on the knuckles and other extensor surfaces of the limbs. Uh, mechanics hands, so that dry, cracked skin at the fingertips, sometimes with ulcerating lesions. Uh, and then one that we uh, don't usually see early in disease, but can be very prominent in late untreated disease is calcinosis cutis. And patients can form these either small or sometimes very large uh, calcific growths under their skin. Uh, again, often at joint surfaces. Uh, there is an amyopathic form, so that's important to know. Uh, and it's kind of confusing as to why it's called dermatomyositis then, but it, it's really patients with all the classic skin findings that have very little in the way of weakness and sometimes even a, a fairly normal appearing muscle biopsy. Uh, just like in polymyositis, you often see an older CK, although I think it's less obligatory in dermatomyositis. Uh, and a lot of, there is some antibody overlap here as well. The most common ones are probably the anti-JO1 antibody again, uh, and you can also see interstitial lung disease here. Uh, the other ones worth knowing, uh, just because they're common, are anti-ME2, uh, that's MI-2, and anti-MDA5. Those are probably numbers two and three in terms of the most common antibodies we find. Uh, and then one other one that's important to know because it has a high association with malignancy is anti-TIF1 gamma, TIF-1 gamma. The EMG will look similar to polymyositis. So again, you'll see this increased insertional activity or, or spontaneous activity at rest, but a myopathic appearing EMG. So short amplitude, low, or sorry, low amplitude, short duration, potentially polyphasic motor units with increased firing and early recruitment. Uh, the path is very different from polymyositis. And this is really probably important to know for exam purposes because it's classically testable. So unlike in polymyositis, you don't see a huge amount of inflammatory cell infiltrate. You can see some, but it's not as prominent. And what you do see is this uh, very classic, they call it perifascicular atrophy. And if you look at a biopsy, you know, picture a muscle uh, in cross-section, each fiber, uh, each fascicle is sort of surrounded by connective tissue. And at the edges of those fascicles, the muscle fibers seem to be atrophied. And it almost looks as if uh, you're looking at a 3D image and someone had wrapped the edge of the muscle over the edges of a cliff. So they're, they're really very narrow as compared to the fibers in the center of the muscle. Uh, I'd recommend Googling a picture of it now and just seeing it in your mind because it's very classic. Uh, and there is actually some evidence of microvasculopathy. And one theory that's that's been floated, although never confirmed to my knowledge, is that uh, what you're actually seeing is ischemic damage around the periphery of the muscle due to a microvasculopathy. But there's controversy about that, about that point. I do think it's worth knowing that there are a number of systemic complications to be aware of. So you can see both cardiac conduction and uh, pump deficits, decreased ejection fraction. 
Uh, again, you can see interstitial lung disease. You can also often see arthralgias or arthritis. And then in particular with dermatomyositis, you need to be very vigilant for malignancy, especially in older adult patients when they present. And I often screen these patients aggressively for uh, a malignancy, including CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. And if that's unrevealing, we'll often do a PET scan uh, to be sure. And, and typically we'll follow up at a one or two year interval uh, because the, the syndrome may proceed in a detectable cancer uh, by some degree. You treat it very similar to, to polymyositis. Uh, obviously, if there's a malignancy, you treat that primarily. You can treat the myositis with uh, any of the immune suppression we previously mentioned. And then also, a lot of these patients will be on Plaquenil, uh, hydroxychloroquine, if they can get any in the modern day and age. And that I don't know if that reference to the COVID outbreak will age very well, but uh, it's uh, used only for the skin findings. It does not treat the myositis. I didn't know that. That's... Uh... Very interesting. Yeah. And often these patients are followed by dermatology, rheumatology, and uh, neuromuscular medicine. So there's really a, a coordination of care there. Thanks a lot for the points. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I want to elaborate on is the biopsy, and thanks for elaborating on how what, it, what exactly would look for. Uh, but like just a reminder for polymyositis, it's a uh, perimedial uh pattern. So is that a perimesial uh, just cells in the perimesium? And could you kind of contrast that uh, with just so we can kind of have, a, have an idea about how, what the muscle fiber look like? Yeah. So so we'll actually see perimesial and sometimes even endomesial. So within that fascicle, you'll see uh, inflammatory cells. And again, the thing you really want to find if you're the pathologist or, or the person looking at the, the tissue is these cells within the muscle fibers themselves. So they've invaded probably from the paramecium, where they're very concentrated, a paramecium, into the muscle fibers themselves. That's in polymyositis. So in polymyositis, you're going to see the cells in the paramecium, and then you go, they go into the muscle fibers itself. Correct. It's, it's typically more in the paramecium, but actually perivascular is really where you're going to see a lot of the cells. And they can still be scattered throughout. But if you compare the two side by side, the, the prominence of inflammatory cells is nowhere near as high in dermatomyositis, despite it being an itis. Oh, I see. Very interesting. Uh, but the, the pattern of atrophy, we just don't see. Yeah, exactly. And Google it, stare at it. You'll never forget it. It's a classic. It's bound to show up on one of your uh, exams at some point in your life. Thank you. All right. And then we can talk about the, the last, which is inclusion body myositis and somehow uh, different than the two that we yeah. This is, a, this is, I think, a puzzle uh, to a lot of people. I mean, we, we include it as a myositis, but it has some features that really don't jive with it being uh, an autoimmune disease, and I'll talk about those. But uh, this one's nice because it's named after its pathologic findings, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, it's a sporadic disease. I think there's also uh, a group of diseases known as inclusion body myopathies, which are uh, hereditary. This is something that is not congenital, and it actually shows up in adult life, usually in patients after 50. Uh, it has this classic pattern, and this is imminently testable, uh, and infinitely testable. I'm sure you'll see it more than once. Uh, and that's uh, a weakness that early on seems to be restricted to the forearms, the quadriceps, and the ankle dorsiflexors. And in every uh, neurology textbook, there's a picture of a patient with their arms in their lap, and you can see that the, the muscle bulk in the medial forearm where all the, the flexors are, seems as if it's almost been carved out. And the actual name for this is scooped out forearms. It's a classic, uh, almost pathognomonic finding when the rest of the arm bulk is preserved. 
you can also see, although you really, you know, you have to be vigilant and ungown the pa or gown the patient, you can see atrophy in the quadriceps muscles as well with relatively preserved posterior compartment and gastrox. Uh, and so both of those should definitely raise your antenna when you find them on exam. Now, later in disease, uh, the weakness can be more diffuse. It can be more proximal in the arms and distal in the legs. And uh, you can see other findings like dysphagia, usually not as much uh, respiratory dysfunction, but uh, if you catch it early enough, you, you should be uh, pleased with the pathognomonic pattern. You're less likely to see an elevated CK. It can be mildly elevated and it can fluctuate up and down and uh, sort of be triggered by illness and other things. The thing we really like to find in inclusion body myositis is a, a positive antibody. And this antibody is to NT5C1A is the abbreviation for it. It's really, for all intents and purposes, is fairly specific to inclusion body myositis. It's not 100% uh, sensitive. And oftentimes I'll check patients twice if I'm not sure. And if I get it, I'll check it twice just to confirm it's real because that really helps me with their diagnosis. Uh, the EMG can look like other inflammatory myopathies. Uh, you sort of have to test the right muscles early. Uh, and it's important to remember, really with any of these myopathies, uh, when you're testing, if you're going to send a patient for a muscle biopsy right away, you want to save a muscle for muscle biopsy. If you stick a needle in it, you're going to induce inflammatory findings that could be confused uh, with, uh, you know, systemic inflammation if they section the wrong part of the muscle. So if, I'm, if I want to uh, diagnose a patient with IBM, I'll probably check one of their quadriceps, but then leave the other one untouched for the surgeon. Uh, but that's a good place to start because that's probably where they're going to have some myopathic changes early on. Uh, and on, on EMG, you'll see, again, myopathic recruitment, uh, some spontaneous activity. Uh, in a, a large minority of patients, you'll actually see a sensory motor, predominantly sensory axonal neuropathy as well. And I'm not sure exactly why that happens, but there's a fairly high incidence of it. When you do get pathology, that's really where you can nail this diagnosis. Although again, it's not 100% sensitive, but you'll see inclusion bodies. And these are often seen on, you can see them on H&E, but they really light up on the Gamori trichrome staining. So in, against that blue background, you'll see a pinkish or red inclusion body in the muscle fiber itself. Uh, you may also see some inflammatory infiltrate. Again, it still has some component of an itis to it. Uh, and those cells can invade non-necrotic fibers like polymyositis, but that shouldn't be the predominant finding. You really want to find these inclusion bodies. Uh, there's uh, no good evidence-based treatment. And these patients typically do not respond to immunosuppression. That's one of the things that gives us all pause as to what the primary pathology here is. Uh, oftentimes, when people will try it, and that's helpful to exclude, let's say, an antibody-negative polymyositis, but if the patients don't respond, that really helps you uh, feel more sure that this is IBM. Uh, fortunately, these patients, despite being kind of untreatable in terms of disease-modifying medication, tend to have a normal lifespan or close to normal, and they tend to regain their ambulation for many years after diagnosis. But many will end up requiring either some ambulatory aid or being in a wheelchair towards the end of their life due to proximal leg weakness. The only thing to be aware of in terms probably of long-term supportive care is they can develop dysphagia over time. So you should monitor for aspiration, uh, you know, even silent aspiration, uh, and manage that as needed. Usually it's a matter of dietary modification. Rarely do these patients require uh, peg tubes, as you would see in other neuromuscular disorders, at least until late in life. I see. Then we can talk about the last one, which is immune-mediated myopathy. Yeah, I this one was probably more of an acquired uh, myopathy in terms of secondary to some other insult, but it's important to know because it can be uh, very destructive if not treated. Uh, and this really is uh, often 
confused or, or triggered by a statin myopathy. So these are patients who either have had statins or some other trigger. Uh, alcohol can cause this. There are a few other medications that can cause this. Uh, but they present with a more uh, aggressive, acute, or maybe subacute uh, myopathic pattern. So again, they're proximal and often symmetric, but it's usually more painful, and they have a lot of myalgias. Um, it's important to know that this can happen um, due to malignancy as well, particularly certain GI and lung malignancies. So it's important to screen for that. Uh, and the reason we know it's necrotizing is actually they have necrotic fibers that seem to be not primarily due to immune uh, infiltration, although you can see that too. Uh, but it's this predominance of necrotic fibers uh, throughout the muscles without any of the other features that we see uh, with polymyositis or dermatomyositis. And it, you really can see all the diagnosis in these patients if you find an antibody to the HMG-CoA uh, receptor, which is why uh, this is often called a necrotizing statin myopathy, because that's, that's the target of the statin drugs. Uh, these patients need to be diagnosed early and treated aggressively with immunotherapy, sometimes with multiple agents. But if you do that, you can actually halt and, and prevent any permanent damage from this disease. So that's why I think it's important to keep on your differential for uh, aggressive weakness with a myopathic appearance. Absolutely, especially in neurologic patients, um, vascular patients who you always put on statin. Exactly. And we'll talk about statin myopathy in a little bit. Very good. So I just wanted to recap the highlights uh, very quickly. So for the inflammatory myopathies, we can talk about polymyositis. Uh, polymyositis, the CK is always most definitely elevated. You get this pattern of proximal, uh, more than distal weakness. Um, and then you have the classic EMG findings of a myopathy, which is small, short duration, polyphasic uh, motor units um, with an early recruitment, which uh, is a myopathic pattern that we should keep in mind uh, moving forward. Um, and then the, uh, you have the biopsy, which show the classic, classic paramecial inflammatory infiltrates that could go within the muscle fiber as well, which is uh, very distinct in polymyositis. Immunosuppression works great for these patients. Dermatomyositis, you think about also proximal more than distal, but you think about dermatologic findings, um, heliotrope rash, uh, shawl sign, gut-shrink papules, mechanic pan, uh, calcinosis cutis, and then um, the CK could be elevated, uh, but not uh, just right, not always just like polymyositis would. And then the pathology finding is the perifascicular muscle fiber atrophy. Um, look it up. It, 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 it's very distinct. Um, immunosuppression would work also. And then we need to think about uh, systemic manifestation. For inclusion body myositis, uh, we think about it more as the neurodegenerative, um, uh, not really responsive to steroids, which makes it a little bit different than the other two categories that we just spoke about. Um, and then this is not the, the classic proximal. It's rather the forearm flexors, quads, ankle dorsiflexors, um, and the, the CK could, could be elevated or not. And the EMG, uh, like we said, the myopathic pattern and the path would have a rimmed vacuoles. Um, there's really no evidence of good treatment and we need to be on the lookout for people developing dysphagia down the road and needing a PEC tube. Um, as far as the last one, which is immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy, um, you know, you think about it with statins, people could have a GI or a lung malignancy. Um, it's uh, an acute, subacute, proximal weakness, myalgias, early detection is very important. You can see a positive anti-HMG-CoA antibody, and they require very aggressive immunotherapies to save these people from 
um, weakness down below. Excellent. We can talk about thank you. We can talk about systemic diseases and uh, the sort of myopathies you develop with that. Yeah. So this is, I think, how we're going to close, just with some uh, secondary myopathies. And honestly, you know, we, I think about myopathies all the time. Uh, probably most of the times you see a myopathy, it's going to be secondary. A lot of these diseases we're talking about are rel relatively rare compared to what's seen in your average everyday hospital setting. Now you come to a neuromuscular clinic and that's a different story. So I'm, I try to remember that these things don't happen as often for all patients as they do for the patients that I see. So uh, let's just talk about some primary causes. I think we'll start with systemic diseases that are sort of classic for causing myopathies. Uh, the one that we probably see left off less often these days is HIV, and usually that's because it requires a severe immunodeficiency, often with progression to AIDS level of CD4 count, to have uh, a acute myopathy. The myopathy is inflammatory, and it's probably due to some immune uh, response as opposed to direct viral invasion itself. Uh, it's probably worth knowing that you can treat this with steroids, but of course that's risky in a patient who's already immunosuppressed. So those benefits and risks have to be weighed heavily. And obviously these patients are going to need aggressive prophylaxis for secondary disorders if you're going to put them on uh, corticosteroids. Uh, it's worth knowing that amyloidosis can cause a myopathy, just like it can invade a lot of other tissues. It's easy to diagnose. You just have to remember it. Uh, and it's usually seen with primary uh, AL amyloidosis as opposed to secondary amyloidosis. So if you have a patient who has known AL amyloidosis and is getting weak, uh, a muscle biopsy will be confirmatory, although it probably won't change your management because you're going to try and treat the primary disease. Uh, thyroid disorders are a classic uh, uh, bad player, and it can actually happen with hypo or hyperthyroid. Uh, I'm thinking of a patient recently who I saw uh, actually went into a myxedema coma and his TSH was in the 80s and it was out of control. And he, he took him months to walk again. But when you listen to his story, his most prominent feature had been subacutely progressive weakness over about six weeks uh, and he just hadn't gotten it checked out. So it, it probably happens with modest uh, hypothyroidism. You don't need to be as severe as, as being in myxedema coma. Uh, it's, it can even be chronic on the order of many months. It follows that typical pattern of a proximal uh, symmetric weakness. One of the interesting uh, clinical findings is patients actually have a delayed relaxation of their deep tendon reflexes. And I, I would let someone smarter than me explain to you why that is, but it's just something that sticks in my mind. The other thing you can see is what's called myoedema. Uh, and this is, it looks like kind of like myotonia. So if you percuss a muscle, the muscle will sort of bulge up, but it's not really contracting. And if you actually had an EMG needle in it, you wouldn't hear any uh, electrical activity. It's, it's just a sort of morphologic change in the muscle. Uh, but it's kind of interesting. I've only seen videos of it, to be honest with you. Uh, these patients will obviously have markedly elevated TSHs and also uh, CK levels. Uh, and you really just treat them by treating the primary disease. So you supplement thyroid hormone and, and give them prolonged rehabilitation. And often they can have a pretty good recovery. Hyperthyroidism, again, uh, can present with it's either subacute or even more chronic uh, symmetric proximal weakness. Uh, remember that uh, hypothyroid causes uh, a lot of sort of hyperactivity throughout the body. And you can see that on the muscle as well. So you can see fasciculations or even myokymia, uh, tremors. You can see some of this activity on EMG in, in the spontaneous portion of EMG study. Uh, and you can actually see, interestingly enough, they can have these periodic paralysis syndromes uh, that for all intents and purposes could mimic another periodic paralysis, but it's uh, due to the thyrotoxicity. 
And so those are responsive then to treatment of the hyperthyroidism. Uh, but you really just have to then treat that just like you would treat a patient with Graves or other uh, systemic consequences of hyperthyroidism. Uh, a number of electrolyte imbalances can cause uh, muscle issues. Uh, you've probably heard of magnesium imbalances and phosphate imbalances. I think the most common uh, for all patients is probably a hypokalemic uh, myopathy. And this is different from a periodic paralysis. So it's not due to an underlying channelopathy. It's just your muscle needs potassium to function. Uh, and so uh, in patients who are hypokalemic for one reason or another, they'll become uh, weak. Usually it requires potassium levels in the low twos. So oftentimes these patients are on the border of uh, unfortunate cardiac effects as well. Uh, and usually the myopathy is less concerning, uh, but it just should trigger you to look for what the cause of their hypokalemia is. And all you really need to do is replete their potassium. Now, if you over replete, uh, you can also get weak with hyperkalemia. So uh, just like any other potassium repletion, be careful. I think the last thing worth mentioning is we often think of rhabdo as a uh, muscle disorder. It's almost always secondary to something. So if you're getting a patient with uh, rhabdomyolysis, rhabdomyolysis uh, find the cause. You know, usually it's going to be someone who is, has prolonged downtime or severely exercised. But uh, if, if those things are ruled out, uh, it's time to go hunting. And we talked about a number of disorders that can cause recurrent rhabdo in this podcast, uh, the glycogen storage diseases, the lipid metabolism disorders. Uh, some of the uh, muscular dystrophies can have a baseline, very high CK, but that can be exacerbated. Uh, and certainly in any patient who's having myoglobinuria, which requires a CK usually in the tens of thousands, uh, that should trigger you to go hunting for a secondary cause. Uh, and oftentimes uh, these patients will get screened for the variety of congenital myopathies that could leave them predisposed to rhabdo. Uh, now, that doesn't change your acute treatment. You always want to hydrate and protect the kidneys and all of that, but the job isn't done once the rhabdo is resolved if you don't have an obvious trigger. Very good. So, that was great talk. So, systemic disease is worth noting because we always throw sarcoidosis on the differentials, but with sarcoidosis, we actually need to think more of a neuropathy rather than a myopathy. Yeah. Yeah. Almost all cases of sarcoidosis, if they're weak, I would rule out a neuropathy first. And typically that weakness is going to have a different appearance, but sarcoidosis is one of the classic causes of mononeuritis multiplex. So you can have uh, a proximal pattern just by chance and be tricked uh, if you're not looking for neuropathy. So play the odds on that one. Very good. And the other ones are HIV, primary amyloidosis, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, hypokalemia, um, as well as like, you know, you have to um, make sure you don't overcorrect the hypokalemia. Um, other secondary uh, causes, one that we particularly think about in an inpatient setting and we often get consults on in the NICU is critical illness myopathy. Would you mind elaborating on that a bit, Jeff? Yeah. So this is another one that uh, is the subject of a lot of discussion among uh, the neuromuscular community anyway. Uh, not all critical illness will cause critical illness myopathy. And so the question is always, what was the trigger in these patients? Uh, a lot of the you know, I think what makes it hard is there actually is not a lot of good uh, large-scale, uh, you know, case series or anything to help us understand patterns of critical illness myopathy, probably because it's often just treated supportively. But uh, at least a lot of these patients, you should make sure uh, if they've had a history of, let's say, uh, steroid administration during the illness or prolonged neuromuscular blockade, those are probably the two most common causes. And if you have that in your history in a patient who's very weak, say, post-extubation, that helps you a lot in terms of your diagnosis. But 
Uh, there are reports of simply sepsis causing this without the need for neuromuscular blockade or steroids. Uh, patients who have just been in multi-organ failure period can have this. Uh, it's sometimes known as acute quadriplegic myopathy. I mean, it is acute. It happened at some point during the critical illness, but it probably seems more acute than it is because often these patients are sedated and it's only when they wake them up and try to get them off the vent that they notice that they're having diffuse weakness. And that's when neurology usually gets involved unless it's in a neurologic ICU. Um, these patients should have elevated CK. Now, if they've been in it for a while, they may not. Uh, I think it's important to rule out critical illness polyneuropathy because that certainly could cause weakness as well. And really the only way to do that is with a bedside EMG. Uh, you can see necrosis if you end up biopsying these patients. I wouldn't recommend routinely biopsying them. I think if the clinical conditions are right, you can proceed with uh, supportive care, and that's really just to avoid uh, offending agents going forward. So, you know, don't put them on high-dose steroids if you don't have to, uh, and really aggressively rehabilitate these patients and see if they're getting better. Um, would critical illness polyneuropathy be managed differently if we detect it with an inpatient EMG? Not necessarily. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, think, I think it would just be important to make sure that it wasn't, let's say, a secondary inflammatory neuropathy uh, or something else. And also with these patients, you know, consider, could this be an ischemic central problem? Could this be a cervical spine issue? Uh, it's really important to think broadly and not just assume that all weakness in the ICU is either critical illness, neuropathy, or myopathy. It's really a diagnosis of exclusion. Of course. Um, and there are some toxic uh, and drugs that could induce myopathies that we can talk about. Yeah. So, uh, Alcohol. I'll always just remember alcohol. Alcohol is a toxin, uh, and it's probably one of the more common causes of myopathy. It can cause various kinds of myopathy, uh, a really aggressive necrotizing myopathy that usually comes with high or binge use uh, or high chronic use of alcohol. Uh, it can cause a more insidious uh, myopathy uh, diffusely, or it can even cause, as a lot of you know, an isolated cardiomyopathy. Cardio uh, so alcohol is not great for the muscle. The other one that uh, non-neurologists and neurologists alike will see a lot is a statin myopathy. Uh, uh, again, sort of related to this HMG cholereductase uh, antibody-mediated necrotizing myopathy. The statin myopathy is sort of by definition mild. It's usually more a uh, problem with myalgias and muscle soreness than actual weakness. Uh, and those can, that can be exacerbated by activity. It can be seen with really any of the statins. Uh, Simva is probably, Simva statin is probably the most likely. Uh, and pravastatin and fluvastatin the least likely, but that's a spectrum, uh, and it probably varies from one patient to another. Uh, I don't think there's a way before prescribing a statin to know if a patient's susceptible, although I think there's some idea that there may be a familial predisposition. Um, but oftentimes, if you switch the patient either to a lower dose or to a, a statin that's less likely to cause it, they'll be fine. So it doesn't mean that they can't be on a statin. Where you really run into trouble is when you stop the statin and the symptoms don't get better, and then they get worse and worse and worse, that's somebody who's been tipped over into the immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy. And statin administration is often a trigger for the formation of these antibodies. Those are the patients that need to be treated with aggressive immune therapy. And I would think a lot more carefully about restarting them on a statin uh, later. Now, some other cholesterol-lowering agents can cause myopathy as well, so you're not out of the woods if you're not using a statin. Uh, but we really, because statins are so common, this is probably what we see the most of. Let's see. Uh, another one that's worth mentioning uh, in this day and age is uh, myopathy due to uh, the anti-malarials, and particularly chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, this can be acute, it can be insidious, it can have myalgias or not, uh, and it actually can be associated with a neuropathy. Uh, so 
it's just important to think about in patients who are on these medications. Uh, obviously, it's probably more likely seen for rheumatologic disorders, although this day and age, uh, with people taking these medications fairly freely in the era of COVID-19, uh, it's something to be on the lookout for, for sure. Absolutely. And then, of course, we talk a lot about steroid myopathy, uh, and we sort of already touched on this with crucoinous myopathy, but uh, patients either with endogenous increased corticosteroids, so those with Cushing's disease or uh, iatrogenic uh, corticosteroid administration, uh, especially chronically and at high doses, can have this insidious proximal myopathy. Uh, we don't really know why some patients are more susceptible. It is more common in women. The pathology here is probably the one thing worth remembering. And you, classically, you'll see an atrophy of type 2 muscle fibers. So those are the faster contracting muscle fibers. And you can distinguish these from type 1 with various uh, pathologic stains that you probably don't need to memorize. Uh, but you may see a description in a question stem uh, that on pathology, these patients have type 2 fiber atrophy. And the reason that's relevant is because their EMGs often don't appear myopathic. Uh, because type 1 fibers are spared and contribute more to the uh, classic uh, EMG findings in the muscles that we test. So this is where it can be a little bit confusing. You have a patient who seems weak, you send them for an EMG. They say there's no evidence of myopathy. That doesn't rule out a steroid myopathy in the right clinical context. Very good to note. And then I think the last one we'll just talk about, because it's a commonly prescribed medication, is colchicine myopathy. Uh, this is somebody who's uh, you're going to see after chronic colchicine use, but if, for those of you listening to this who are internists and, and treat gout, uh, it's definitely something to keep in mind. All you got to do is DC the colchicine. There's really nothing else to do, but uh, just something to be aware of uh, because we prescribe this so much. Absolutely. And then you can, you can end with a uh, dropped head um, neck extensor myopathy. Yeah, this uh, is a, a little more muscular treat uh, because it's uh, kind of is very rare, but it's kind of fun, I guess. And it, it sort of mystifies a lot of us as to what the cause of it is. So these are typically older patients uh, who, you know, a lot of people get sort of stooped as they're older. They have wedge compressions of their vertebrae and, and have that stooped posture. But this is a much more dramatic uh, and often more rapid change in their posture. Patients will even say seemingly overnight, uh, but usually over the course of days to weeks, they have increasing trouble keeping their head up to the point that it's totally dropped. And that's why the name is dropped head syndrome. Now this can progress down into thoracic paraspinal muscles and they can form this bent spine syndrome too. The thing that distinguishes them from your average person with, let's say, vertebral issues or chronic um, just osteoporosis is when you lay these patients flat on their backs, they go right back to a normal posture. So you're able to passively correct this deficit as opposed to patients with chronic stooped posture where they often get contractures that don't allow them to straighten up anymore. Um, it's, uh, it's unclear exactly what the cause of this is. Some people speculate that it's a very late onset, uh, axial muscular dystrophy. And, and this is, uh, I think reinforced by some patients can actually develop a little bit of shoulder girdle weakness as well. Other people say it's an isolated form of motor neuron disease. Uh, some people say it's just focal inflammatory changes. It's not necessarily relevant what the cause is so much as you've ruled out these other disorders that can be. Uh, more widespread. So things to consider should be uh, motor neuron disease, muscular dystrophies, myasthenia gravis is a common cause of uh, neck extensor weakness. Uh, those are probably the big three. And oftentimes when you send these patients for an EMG uh, or a conducting study, these are the things that are going to be ruled out with more extensive testing. If you biopsy the muscles, they do actually look uh, myopathic in nature. So it, that lends more credence to this being a myopathy. 
but again, uh, biopsy is oftentimes deferred until all these other things have been ruled out. Uh, some people do describe a response to immune suppression. I don't know, maybe this is uh, a common um, you know, finding of, of many different processes that all affect the paraspinal muscles. I don't, I don't really know why immune suppression would work in some and not others, and some patients would have myopathic findings. I, I don't think it really matters. Just be vigilant about working up the cause, and if the patient is really having trouble, you could do a short course of immunosuppression, uh, but really the care for this is supportive, often including neck bracing. Uh, and there are a few neck braces out there that were actually developed for patients with ALS, but that are meant to be worn chronically in a comfortable way, as opposed to your typical rigid C-spine collar or soft collar. So that's something you could consider looking into. Very interesting. It is worth knowing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, it is worth knowing that these patients, uh, there is an increased risk of uh, malignant hyperthermia, and that's because some of these patients have mutations in the RYR1 gene. So I think it's just worth making a note of, uh, let's say, if they're going for elective or, or even emergent surgery, the anesthesiologist should be aware that they have a potential for malignant hyperthermia, although it's tough to place a quantitative risk on that. Very good. This this was a great uh, review, and these are these are even like things that we can clinically apply, not just for exam purposes um, that happen to be part of our daily routine consults. Absolutely. Do you want to think? Um, some toxics that could induce myopathy, statins, alcohol, plaquenol, steroids, colchicine, uh, and then when you find someone with a bent spine syndrome or stooped posture, you want to rule out these other um, conditions that could, could cause this presentation as well, like myasthenia gravis, ALS, um, vocal muscular dystrophies, and um, all, all these uh, other syndromes. Um, that was a wonderful review. I've learned a lot, Jeff, and it was very um, detailed, but also um, succinct and um, very nice to follow. Um, stay tuned, guys. We're going to have a lot more podcasts coming in um, to help us all continue our education in these hard times. Um, stay well and safe. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And by the way, I just should probably list my sources. Uh, these are the things that I learned neuromuscular from when I was a fellow. And if you're really interested in learning more, there are a couple of great sources out there. One is uh, the textbook Neuromuscular Disorders by Anthony Amato and James Russell. Uh, that's probably considered the, the core textbook of a lot of neuromuscular training programs. And then the other is a, a really extensive website that's maintained by Dr. Alan Pestronk at the University of Washington. And it's neuromuscular wustlwashustlouis.edu. I think between those two, you could learn about everything you'd want to know uh, about neuromuscular, uh, at least while you're home on uh, self-isolation. Amazing. Thank you. Appreciate it. No, thank you. This was really fun. Let's do it again. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.